welcome to Musings on History. Episode 1.3, Richard III. Hello everybody and welcome back to Musings on History. I had some technical difficulties that have essentially kept me from doing uh, my show for the past couple of weeks, but I'm back now and I'm ready to conclude my mini-series on Shakespeare's plays with not my personal favorite, but a good one nonetheless, Richard III. Richard III is a historical play believed to have been written around 1593, but not first performed until November 1633 during the restoration period of the English monarchy. It is the dramatization of the rise and fall of King Richard III, who reigned as King of England from October 1483 until his death at the Battle of Bosworth Field in August of 1485. The characters in Richard III are based on figures from the War of the Roses, an English civil war between two factions descended from the sons of Edward III and Philippa of Hainault. Edward III had five sons that lived to adulthood, Edward, Lionel, John, Edmund, and Thomas. Edward, son of Edward, had a son named Richard, who then became Richard II. Lionel had a daughter named Philippa, John had a son with his first wife named Henry, who became Henry IV, and Edmund had a son named Edward, who became the second Duke of York. Richard II didn't have any sons, so he named his cousin Roger de Mortimer as his heir. Roger was the son of Philippa, who was the daughter of Lionel, and Roger had a grandson named Richard because I guess there's only like 10 names in England. This Richard became the third Duke of York and the first Yorkist claimant to the throne. Richard of, the, of York himself had four sons, Edward again, Edmund again, George, and little Richard, Richard III. Got it? Good, because it's about to get real confusing once we move over to the Lancastrian side of things. John of Gaunt was the fourth son of Edward III and a hoe, essentially. He got married three times. His first wife, Blanche of Lancaster, from whom he inherited or took over the title of Duke of Lancaster. They had a son, Henry, that's Henry IV. And with his third wife, because with his second wife, she was the Queen of Castile, I believe. He wasn't able to press his claim on Castile, though, after she died. But his third wife, Catherine, who he was with for 25 years before they got married, they had four children before their marriage, which meant they were having kids together all through his marriage to both Blanche and to the Catherine that he was married to, other Catherine he was married to, rather. With his third wife, Catherine, he had a son named John, who had a daughter named Margaret, who had a son named John again who had a son named Henry who then became Henry the seventh of the Tudors 
confusing? I bet. It was confusing then and it will probably remain confusing. So forgive me for trying to run through the War of the Roses really quickly, but that was a whole ass saga in and of itself. And the takeaway leading up to the play Richard III is the Yorkists have won, but they have not solidified their claim to the English throne. There's still Lancastrians out there lurking, because like I said, John of Gaunt was kind of a hoe. But after the death of Henry VI and his son, Edward of Westminster in 1471, Richard of York's eldest son, Edward, took the throne of England as Edward VI. And most people thought the War of the Roses had ended and the Yorkists had won. But the issue that had caused the War of the Roses in the first place still remained. There were too many heirs. Richard of York had his three living sons, Edward, George, and Richard, who, with the exception of Richard, had married, and those women had royal, fa had aristocratic families of their own with pretensions and goals and aims of enrichment of their own. So that meant within the Yorkist faction, there's three men with their own dukedoms who could be persuaded by their retainers to make a grab for power. In addition to the Lancastrian threat not being completely eliminated, the York faction now had to deal with infighting as the other aristocratic families sought to play the brothers against one another. Shakespeare sort of simplifies the intrigue by making Richard the main schemer, but in real life, all three brothers and their wives' families plotted and schemed while the Lancastrian faction was rebuilding their power base in the west of England and in Wales and finding their nearest male heir to champion. Now, at the heart of the War of the Roses and many other dynastic struggles is the often hypocritical policy of primogeniture, which is the inheritance custom where the firstborn legitimate son inherits his father's title and or estate. Now, primogeniture does in some cases mean firstborn child regardless of gender, but in England, this distinction had never been explicitly detailed by law as it had in France, where the principle of Salic law stated that not only could women neither inherit nor pass down titles and estates, they could not rule as queen in their own right. Fun fact about Salic law is that although Salic law dated back to the Frankish kingdoms of the 8th century where the Frankish king would split up his holdings between all his adult sons which led to the fall of the Frankish kingdoms as it did the Mongol kingdoms before that um, the, the French had hastily adopted Salic law when Edward III, the same Edward III whose virile nature created the War of the Roses, his mother was Isabella, the she-wolf of France, Isabella II. And her brother was the king of France at the time. When he died childless, Edward was the closest legitimate male heir, but Edward was also already sitting on the throne of England and had substantial holdings in several counties in northern France. So the French 
refused to, you know, accept his claim to the throne and found another relative who was already in France and was not also already one of the largest landholders in France and also already king of England. And Edward refused to, you know, let that slide. He wanted to be king of England and France, not king of England, if not also king of France is a famous line from well, Henry V is the one that said it, but Edward III is the one that started it. And that started the Hundred Years' War. So pretty much, not only did Edward III spend a good half of his reign in war, his ego and virility started two more wars. So thank you for that, Edward. England is now, of course, famous for its queens, but the first queen of England had yet to reign by the time of the War of the Roses. And the English, by that point, had generally favored Salic primogeniture. Precedent for Salic primogeniture in England extended back to the Treaty of Winchester in 1153, which ended the anarchy. A civil war between the daughter of Henry I and his nephew. Empress Maud was the daughter of King Henry I, who was a son of William the Conqueror. Stephen of, I'm going to say Blois, because I don't speak French, was the son of Adela, who was a daughter of William the Conqueror. When Henry's son and heir, William Adeline, drowned in the white ship disaster of 1120, Henry I declared Maud, who was at the time Empress of the Holy Roman Empire, and thus living in what's now present-day Germany, as his heir. Stephen of Blois argued that by virtue of being male, he was the rightful heir to Henry I's throne. Stephen and Maud duked it out for about a decade and reached a stalemate with neither side wanting to capitulate. However, Stephen was unable to make the Catholic Church recognize his son Eustace as his heir and Maud's son, Henry Fitz Empress, which literally means son of an empress, defeated Stephen in battle and forced him to sign a treaty making Henry Stephen's heir instead of his second son, uh, William, Stephen's second son. Henry Fitz Empress eventually took the throne as Henry II. So try as they might, the English nobility was generally unable to maintain a very strict policy where only male ancestry allowed men to take the throne. Stephen became Stephen the first, or maybe he was Stephen the second. No, he was the first. He became Stephen the first because of his mother's ties to William the Conqueror. And Henry the second also became Henry the second due to his mother's ties. So they weren't able to keep a policy where only male ancestry took the throne, generally because the men who made claims based on their female ancestry usually had armies to back that up. Richard III, third son of Richard of York, who was killed before he could sit on the throne, had no army to back up his pretensions to royalty, but he did have a keen sense of intuition and the ability to exploit the weaknesses of whomever he saw as an obstacle. And in Act 1, Richard identifies his brothers and nephews as his obstacles. Richard had two elder brothers, Edward and George, and the eldest, Edward IV, had two sons that also took precedence over him in the line of succession. The play begins with Richard, who was at the time the Duke of Gloucester, describing to the audience the reaccession of his brother. 
Now is the winter of our discontent made glorious summer by this son of York, and all the clouds that lord upon our house in the deep bosom of the ocean buried. Richard sounds hopeful about the reign of his brother, probably because he's planning to ride the wave of his elder brother's popularity until he's ready to seize the throne for himself. This was a typical power play in medieval European politics. Whoever held the heir, or in Richard's case, heirs, essentially held the reins of power. Most kings couldn't sit the throne until their 15th or 16th year, uh, during which time, if they were crowned, it was with a regent who essentially did all the reigning for them. And so nobles backstabbed one another for the honor of being the king's regent. For the short-lived York dynasty, this was no exception, except Richard did not want to be regent. Richard wanted to be king. His first obstacle was his brother George, the Duke of Clarence. Although Edward, George, and Richard had all worked together to take down the Lancastrians, Edward's decision to marry the widow Elizabeth Woodville caused a rift between George and Edward. George and Richard Neville, the Earl of Warwick, called the Kingmaker, had been negotiating a royal marriage between Edward and the King of France's daughter to counter Margaret of Anjou's plan to gain French alliance by marrying her son, Edward Westminster, to the King's daughter. Instead, but when Elizabeth Woodville, whose husband had been a Lancastrian supporter, died in battle and his lands had been taken, Elizabeth had gone before Edward asking for her husband's land to be returned to her sons and Edward fell in love with her and married her. This marriage was uncommon for a king because Elizabeth was only the daughter of a knight and as such did not add any sort of prestige to the York dynasty or money to their coffers via a dowry. Royal marriages were made for political reasons and so marrying another English woman was kind of a dumb move because you already had her family's loyalty, it was assumed. Marrying Elizabeth while Neville was in France making marriage proposals as his envoy also upset the overly proud Neville and shamed him in front of the French court. This made Neville, who was pretty powerful in the north of England uh, and whose armies had been instrumental in the Yorkist victories at St. Albans and Tewkesbury, which is where Edward secured his crown, a very, he was a very important ally and a very, very dangerous foe. Most of the country had either continued to support Henry VI in the war out of love for his father, mostly, who was the hero of Agincourt, or they had remained neutral, just waiting to see who would win out. Losing the support of the Earl of Warwick was a more devastating blow to the Yorkist faction than Edward initially realized. In real life, the move upset George of Clarence so much that he openly rebelled against Edward and joined with Neville, with Neville dying at the Battle of Barnet and George being captured and executed for treason when this rebellion failed. Elizabeth Woodville and her family didn't make things any better, ordering her husband to appoint her relatives to important and lucrative positions that senior noble families felt 
belonged to them, which of course stirred up enmity in Edward's court. Richard III in the Shakespeare uh, version of events was able to capitalize on these divisions between his brothers to convince Edward that George was plotting against him, an act that is conspicuously left unconfirmed in the play despite all George's protestations to the contrary. Richard III in real life was described as having a stooped appearance and in the play he's described as a hunchback. In reality, when they uh, exhumed his remains, he had scoliosis, but it wasn't as pronounced as history has led us to believe. He could sit a horse. He was a pretty decent warrior. Um, he just walked a little bit differently than everybody else. In the medieval and renaissance period, writers and playwrights tended to emphasize the physical deformities as a sign of degeneracy since the people of those times felt like such deformities were the mark of Satan or at the very least a sign of faint damnation by God. What makes this play interesting is that Richard is an almost modern villain and that he recognizes that his condition makes him villainous by these standards. He's internalized this belief stating, I am determined to prove a villain and hate the idle pleasures of these days. But he makes these statements with a sense of bitter mirth, as if he's saying, okay, well, you gonna call me a villain? I'm gonna show you a villain. Richard, like I said, has a very uncanny sense of what people are really thinking and feeling and knows how to manipulate uh, situations to bring about the conclusion that the person was deriving anyway, much like Iago and Othello and Lady Macbeth in Macbeth. Shakespeare stands out amongst the playwrights of his time period, including Christopher Marlowe, because his heroes and villains alike are exploited by their own human frailties instead of some sense of divine providence or an obscure clouded interpretation of fate. Now, as I said before, Richard is masterful at manipulation. He's present when a soothsayer predicts that G of Edward's heirs the murderer shall be, I'm guessing this is Edward III, him again. Richard convinces his brother Edward that the G stands for George, as in George of Clarence, when it actually stood for Gloucester, as in Richard, Duke of Gloucester. Thoroughly convinced of George's guilt, mostly because he wanted to believe that George was plotting against him anyway, Edward has him locked in the Tower of London. Then Richard has George killed in the Tower of London before his trial and then pins the murder on his sister-in-law who had openly quarreled with George at court. This not only drives a wedge between the already very ill Edward and Elizabeth, it also weakens Elizabeth's faction at court when they lose the favor and support of the king. Elizabeth's faction had been trying to put both of Edward's brothers kind of off to the side. In real life, Richard was in the north of England at the time, serving on some other king's business when his brother George went into rebellion and he openly supported Edward. Which, considering that 
the princess in the tower still wound up dying anyway shows really that Richard just knew how to play the long game and let his various enemies eliminate themselves through infighting. Richard's next move was to woo Anne Neville, who was the widow of Edward of Westminster and the youngest daughter of the Earl of Warwick. Anne is initially repulsed by Richard, which is what he expected, but he manages to find all the right words to woo her and win her over, all the while revealing to the audience that marrying her was merely an exercise to flex his powers of persuasion. He says, I'll marry Warwick's youngest daughter. What, though I killed her husband and her father? Proving that even William Shakespeare knew that dating an ugly guy is no guarantee that he will treat you better. Indeed, he might treat you worse as poor Anne will soon find out. During all of this scheming, Richard is detailing his true motivations directly to the audience, which had the strange effect of making him sort of endearing. Uh, The audience is unknowingly being manipulated by Richard as well, since... The other characters' speaking parts in these early acts are minimal, and all we know of them really is what Richard tells us about their nature. Also, Richard's motivations and rationale are often contradictory, which is evidence that he is probably lying to the audience, which isn't far-fetched because he's something of a sociopath. Uh, This has become a fairly common trope in TV and movie writing with legions of fans today still feeling a sense of kinship with characters like Walt from Breaking Bad or Joe from the Netflix show You. The best villains are the ones that are convinced that they're right and Richard certainly fits this mold. That endearment abruptly ends when after removing his brother George from the equation and Richard, upon the death of his brother Edward, one of the few people he does not kill in the play or in real life, uh, he has his men seize his nephews on their way to London and locks them in the tower. Now, in real life, there's no evidence that Richard conspired to kill his nephews as he was appointed Lord Protector by Edward shortly after George was executed. He also played no part in the murder of George in real life either, but I'll explain that later. However, in the play, Richard has a bit of witty repartee with his nephews before he starts conspiring to have them removed. And their ability to see through his golden tongue unnerves Richard greatly. After cajoling the princess to stay in the tower prior to heading to London for their coronation, which was an actual practice for those unwaiting coronation. Richard attempts to get his cousin, the Duke of Buckingham, to secure the death of the princes while he presents himself to the nobles as the true but modest heir to the throne. He's gonna do this through the classic, oh, their mother was a hoe, she uh, stepped out on them, they're baseborn, illegitimate, not the king's sons at all. But uh, Lord Hastings objects to this and is executed on charmed up charges of treason. Once that happened, Edward's widow Elizabeth attempts to take her younger children and flee to safety, but she's not successful in this. And her and her daughter, also named Elizabeth, are kept prisoner as her sons are first accused of being bastards and then killed on Richard's orders. 
once Richard is on the throne, he starts to lose some of his charm as well as his mind. Power being a corrupting force is something that you find quite a bit in Shakespeare's writing. Uh, something similar happens to Macbeth. You know, he's this really intelligent guy, very witty, able to win people over, even if his motives are not always the most upstanding. But once he secures his power, it's kind of like Macbeth and Richard, they tend to forget, you know, the way that you get them is the way you need to keep them. And they start relying on a more base form of intimidation and just killing everybody to secure their hold on power while they also ironically get less insecure and more paranoid. And Richard is starting to do this. Once he's on the throne, he breaks his promise of a land grant to his most ardent supporter, Lord Buckingham. And so Lord Buckingham then defects to the rebel Henry of Richmond, the Welsh Lord from Pembrokeshire, who has become the new Lancastrian champion. What's interesting is Richard is the one driving everybody away from him. And, you know, she not only decides oh he's not that bad she marries him that does a lot to build his standing with the people because the people loved it uh and and edward of westminster and henry the sixth as well and so when richard who is a york marries this widow of lancaster it's kind of showing like he's extending an olive branch and being the bigger person and he manages to convince Anne that he's a decent guy. So then she starts taking up for him whenever anybody has something negative to say about him. But because he's so paranoid and also so heartless, he doesn't realize that maybe it's better to just keep things the way that they are. So he poisons her. Yeah. And tries to use his, of course, now disappearing charm to convince Elizabeth Woodbill to give her last remaining child, her daughter, to him as a wife. Why the hell she would want to do that after you killed her two sons? I don't know. But she repeatedly stalls him out, hoping to secure an alliance with Henry of Richmond via marriage, which she eventually does. Now, as the bodies begin to pile up, Richard becomes increasingly more paranoid and starts to break mentally after executing Buckingham, who had been his closest confidant after his brother George. Having killed his wife and his brother George and his friend Buckingham, Richard is increasingly isolated and beginning to be hated by everyone, including his mother, who curses him right before she dies. At the Battle of Bosworth Field, Lord Stanley defects in the middle of the battle and joins the side of Henry and Rich of Richmond. And then Richard falls in battle, uttering his famous line, a horse, a horse, a kingdom for my horse, or a kingdom for a horse, rather, sorry. Which simply put means Richard values that single horse needed to get the hell out of there alive more than he does the throne of England that so many had to die for him to sit on. As we all know, Henry of Richmond 
won the Battle of Bosworth Field. Richard III was the last English king killed in battle, and Henry eventually took the throne as Henry VII of England, married Elizabeth of York to tie both houses together and end the War of the Roses and began the Tudor dynasty, which, by the way, does not mean two doors, York and Lancaster. Tudor is the name of his father, Owen Tudor. It's a Welsh name. Now, to the real Richard III, he had scoliosis, as I said before, but he was not a hunchback. And the princes in the tower did die under his auspices, but he was not the villain that Shakespeare portrayed him as. Although Richard fought in the battles of Tewkesbury and Barnett, he did not personally kill Edward of Westminster or the Earl of Warwick. And his brother George of Clarence was in open rebellion with Warwick, so his execution was sanctioned by King Edward IV himself. Richard was in the north of England serving in another capacity when his brother was executed, so he really had nothing to do with it. As to the princes, the real Richard did not have them seized, and their deaths are shrouded in mystery. But Richard was already Lord Protector, so he could have easily ruled in all but name and left the boys alive. He was also proclaimed king in Parliament with a pretty wide majority, so there was no need to, like, kill off the major dissenters or anything like that. The most likely scenario, since we all know you don't take notes on a criminal fucking conspiracy, is that a group of nobles who did not want a child king like Henry VI had been, saw in Richard a competent ruler. England had a reputation for warrior kings since the days of the House of Wessex. And the heir to such kings as William the Conqueror, Henry II, and Edward III needed to be pretty well-blooded. Richard had that quality as well as previous administrative experience under his brother Edward. So these nobles probably figured that Richard, a man they knew and probably already had a decent relationship with, would make a more stable king than a 12-year-old boy. As to the deaths of the princes of the Tower, well, it's the Tower of London in the 14th century, so what do you really expect? More than likely, they died of exposure or starvation. Richard III, whose memory was so destroyed that he wasn't even buried with the honors due of a king, because Henry VII had a very vindictive streak, was in truth no more than a Yorkist king who had the misfortune to be the last Yorkist king, and most of the people who wrote about him did so during the reigns of Henry VII, Henry VIII, and Elizabeth I, who were all uh, Tudor monarchs. So it's probably not a good idea to say anything even benign about Richard III when you're alive during the reign of the man or the son or the granddaughter of the man who unseated him. William Shakespeare is to be lauded for his expressive use of the English language. He's said to have added more words and idioms to the English language than any other English writer as well as his poetic demonstrations of human emotions, but he should not be held to any kind of standard when it comes to accurate portrayals of historic events. He was a playwright, a bit of a clout chaser. You have no idea how bad it hurt me to say that, but Titus Andronicus does exist. 
And he was a businessman under the indirect patronage of a queen who cut off her own cousin's head for disrespect. So, although there have been instances where Shakespeare has used characterization to make veiled criticisms of Elizabeth and her reign, he was primarily concerned with keeping the candles lit in the Globe Theater and keeping the Lord Chamberlain happy so that his playing company could stay in business. Therefore, it would not do to insult the Queen's ancestors, dramatized or not, nor would it do to shed any type of sympathetic light on the king that the queen's ancestors had killed in battle. And thus Shakespeare and the Hollandshed that he derived most of this history from have pretty unfairly painted Richard as a villain when in reality he was no more villainous than any king before him. <laughs> 